0: Welcome to VACE, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and joining me as always is my long-standing friend, associate, and always my first choice of a central three-letter agency for intelligence, the SJB, Mr. Stephen James Buckley.
1: That was a great intro, thank you. And hi, everyone. Uh, So we're joined by someone else tonight as well. He is the author of what we think is one of the most important books on ufology at the moment, uh, Mirage Men which is also a documentary, which is also great. And he also runs, I'm using a lot of also tonight, he also runs uh, Strange Attractor Press, which has been celebrating unpopular culture since 2001. So he's an author and a publisher. And finally, last but not least, he's also a musician. Uh, and he's partially responsible for uh, getting me into modular synthesis. So, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. The frequencies, the New Ecstasy was a big... One for me,
2: that's very nice to know,
1: ladies and gentlemen. We have with us tonight Mr. Mark Pilkington. Hello, Mark.
2: Hi, guys, a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I feel in uh, good company. So,
0: thank you. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, Stranger P- Attractor Press really does seem to be sort of going from strength to strength. I supported the Austin Osman Spare Tarot deck recently. Um, okay. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but you've also been releasing books by Eric Davis, Ken Hollings, Jairus, uh, and uh, June Allison Gibbons, I saw, uh, yeah. one of the silent twins. Uh, so that's quite a, a breadth of things, uh, quite a range of books that you're releasing there.
2: Yeah, it is broad. I mean, I always say we're what people used to call a kind of, Underground or counterculture press, but those terms are kind of meaningless these days. But, uh, yeah, interesting weird shit is um, what I would also say. But we, yeah, we're mostly a non fiction press, but with notable exceptions, including most recently, yeah, The Pepsi Color Addict by June Allison Gibbons, which uh, came our way via our friend and author. And fellow musician David Tibet of Current 93 and Friends. And he uh, he's also a big book collector and the Pepsi Color Addict was, is kind of famous amongst other things for being one of the rarest books in the world, um, which is like catnip to Tibet who then had to have a copy. <laughs> um, and it's been, yeah, wonderful, wonderful um thing to be a part of and just to realise how excited people are for, for its publication. But yeah, it's been amazing. It's just myself and Jamie Sutcliffe, so just two of us, um, and it's really extremely hard work, um, but incredibly rewarding. And uh, I, you know, the, the one complaint that we have is we're just, you know, it's really nice to tail producing and publishing the book so we very rarely actually get time to sit back and take stock of what we've done until other people remind us which is which is really nice.
0: I was uh, I was surprised when I found out there was only two of you because you do seem to have had quite a, a, a fast-paced and, and fairly prolific output recently.
2: Yeah we had a we, we got hit pretty hard uh, both personally and professionally last year, and that kind of put us quite a big dent in our schedule. So we're now kind of making up for lost time and just trying to get back on track. So, yeah, this year I think we've, yeah, we're on about at least two books a month, which is, which is mad, um, which also is unsustainable. It's not going to carry on, but we're definitely going to slow down after this year just for our physical and mental health. And also we both do, you know, Jamie's a uh, you know, highly respected art writer and curator. Um, I'm supposed to be writing another book. Uh, I, you know, w- want to be doing more music and things as well. And But you can't, as you get older, you soon learn, you can't do everything at once especially when kids enter <laughs> the matrix
0: i think that your writing is is something that uh, our listeners will probably also be familiar with it's because as buckley was saying you wrote mirage men and uh, co-produced uh, the documentary as well um and it's actually been 10 years hasn't it a decade since the mirage men documentary came out it's a fantastic film it really really is um i i think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are probably familiar with it um
1: and if they're not they should make themselves familiar with yes it.
0: We'll, immediately we'll, we'll, we'll put yeah. links in the show notes to it um available the, the documentary is available from stranger tractor i'll put that out there now
2: it's also up on streaming various streaming platforms If people are so happier i think you can get it on vimeo and apple and things like that
0: It came out at a really interesting time as well. The book came out in 2010, the film in 2013, and it really sort of kicked off a decade in which misinformation became a massive currency, uh, political and uh, social. um, And I think that was possibly you either caught a current or you were at the forefront of the wave of that kind of thing as well. Um, Because, I mean, you also had following that on both sides of the Atlantic, you had Trump, Cummings, Brexit, you had COVID at the very end of the decade, QAnon, Um, you had other weaponized conspiracy theories, you had the social media with filters and which everyone could be their own agent of misinformation. So it was a very prescient book in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, thanks. I, I, I agree with you. Impression doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I, I would say accidentally. So, you know, rather than intentionally. And when I look back, you know, it's I, I'm really, it's still really interested in, say, something like the Serpo story, which is one of the things that kind of kicked off the whole, you yeah know, our whole kind of Mirage Men investigation. Um, and to me that you know that still feels like some kind of um you know um experimental disinformation release or sort of test bed for trying out some kind of new online sort of you know uh, disinformation marketing scheme um although a very time-consuming and laborious one for whoever was behind it and it's also to their credit still quite amazing we still don't know who was behind it or, and no one's come forward to claim it but um, yeah I think I was also possibly a little naive in some ways you know things I was tentatively suggesting might be going on clearly were going on you know and now we can with hindsight we can see the extent to which you know, online culture and channels and and communications you know have been weaponized um, and were being you know were being weaponized even as I was as I was writing um but um, yeah I mean one of the crucial things you know Mears Men is of course a Uf, you you know, a book about UFOs a book about UFO culture but I w- it was really important to me that for each UFO story that was told, you know, I had an equivalent story from you know from outside of the UFO world within the intelligence and counterintelligence and disinformation kind of histories um and so I think you know that's it works as well as a kind of primer for understanding um strategic deception in a kind of intelligence and military environment the funny thing is afterwards uh the My editor and publisher like oh you know what do you want to do next and the book i really wanted to do was a history of disinformation which uh, would have then been quite prescient but um they thought that sounded a bit depressing and didn't want to didn't want that's a shame (laughs) but
0: but mirage men has become an an absolute classic in its field it had a massive impact um you know cultural impact um I, you still hear it talked about today just a few weeks ago it was mentioned by the new on the haunted objects podcast uh, there was a whole two-part podcast episode of unexplained mysteries about it a oh, few really? years ago no, no, no. um i think parts of the documentary were used in an adam curtis documentary within hyper normalization right. yeah. there's recently been an, an audio book of it giving it a new life on audible so it really still is carrying on it's it's got a life of its own
2: yeah and my m- yeah my i think the the thing I am perhaps happiest most about is that Mirage Men has become a kind of term um, in itself for kind of describing certain types of operations and deceptions within, or certainly the, the the people who conduct these kind of deceptions and operations within the UFO field. So, I, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm very... Was that a
0: term that you invented then, Mirage Men?
2: It was, and my, I have a famously bad memory but my recollection is that John Lundberg and I were sat in a pub I think somewhere in Islington in London and I think we might have just been to a, one of many failed TV meetings to sort of try and impress uh, TV producers to give us some money to make the film and we went to the pub uh, and we'd made a sort of short list of titles and there was a really, kind of quite, quite garrulous kind of semi derelict pis, pistol guy at the next door table who was going, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" So we basically read him off the list and said, "Yeah, which one do you like best?" And, and I think he, I think he chose Mirage, <laughs> <laughs> but it was always it was the best title we we had. There was a working title of uh, for a while, "Messages of Deception," which you might recognize there's a nod to Jacques Ballet's, uh Messengers of Deception, which is another key kind of touchstone book for me, certainly in my UFO uh, uh, sort of research. But yeah, it's really, it's just very gratifying and, um, you know, rewarding and um, somewhat unexpected that it's just had such a long shelf life. Um, and I think part of that, you know, is because it's kind of true. You know? <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, it's. I think at this point, it might be a good idea for us to maybe just assume that some of our audience haven't read it. I know that's a ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous idea because they absolutely should have read it. But uh, do you think we should maybe give them a, a little bit of a, a potted, um, a potted description yeah. of what Mirage Men is about?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've read it more recently than I have,
1: so maybe you can, you can tell. Well, Heinz read it very recently, actually. Heinz read it uh,
0: within what? the last 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not <laughs> so, all of um, it, but... No, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah so but basically, it's, um, I mean, you were talking about doing a book about the history of disinformation, but it is a history of disinformation as uh, applied to the UFO mythology, uh, starting from or just before uh, Roswell and the Arnold sightings and that kind of thing, um, it runs through um, uh, the history of that, whilst also paralleling your time at the uh, Loughlin UFO conference, mm-hmm. was that Vegas?
2: In no Loughlin, Nevada, which is near Nevada, Vegas, sorry. but not actually yeah. Vegas. We did go to Vegas a bit later, but I'm not sure if that goes into the book. Um,
0: and the, um, one of the central stories which is told within it is the Richard Doty, uh, Benowitz, uh, affair, uh, which is a really fascinating, uh, story. And it's really fucking dark as well. Really dark, really upsetting. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, but there's, there's lots of, I mean, it really does a really good job of going into everything from Adamski, Roswell, um, all the, the U-2 bomber stuff um, and it runs all the way up to uh, the uh, about 2006 when it was written um, and it goes very deeply into the intelligence agency's roles in the misinformation which is spread around the UFO phenomenon um, and it's just a really, really fascinating and interesting read.
1: Yeah, I mean I think like f- for me personally reading it, it sort of made me sort of cemented the idea of at least at least the the uh, kind of the position that perhaps a majority of the um sightings that people have of actual craft in the air are military you know are sort of exotic military craft um and that kind of that makes up a lot more than perhaps I initially, would have thought but i think that there's a lot of that going on especially when you look at i mean the book demonstrates sort of um all of these different types of craft that were made and how they look exactly like various types of of sort of famously cited ufo's whether it be the black triangles or the saucers and then the 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 some of the behavior that these craft are capable of in terms of you know hovering without any sound disappearing and Really, as someone who loves ufology and loves the idea of, of UFOs, etc., it was kind of I shouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I did, but it was still it was still great to to read. And it's sometimes good to kind of be challenged and have like a, a different view on things. And yeah, it was good. I felt like my brain was being stretched, and I was taking on different ideas. And yeah, it I think
0: was- that in a way as well, some of the possible technology that the US government has that's discussed in the book, and this is a decade old or more now, plus some of the lengths that the intelligence communities were going to to deceive people are almost weirder than the thought of extraterrestrials visiting the planet in some ways, because some of the stories in there for which there are documented proof are absolutely extraordinary.
2: One of the things that I found most enjoyable was just discovering all the technologies that Existed and had been, you know, deployed for you know, since the fifties and sixties. Even you know, think particularly, I got really interested in the history of radar spoofing, which I think is extremely important to the hist- to the kind of history of the UFO subject, particularly in the military sphere. So that's the ability to create false. Radar paints or targets um, on an enemy's um, radar screen, and that's you, yeah, that was being developed from the end of World War Two, and got really, really effective by the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then was kind of is now kind of fine-tuned to the point where even by the sixties, I think you know you could basically determine the shape and speed of the object so you could make it mimic certain aircraft and things um so things like that another favorite discovery which actually kind of is one of those things that gives you a little bit of a head spin was that you know while i was growing up shall we say in the 80s and being really interested in you know same things we all are conspiracy theories ufos and things uh, the black helicopter was considered the kind of you know, ultimate icon of the uh, you know american conspiracy sphere. uh the silent black helicopter i should say so actually it was only revealed at the time that i was writing that they were you know that they were actually silent helicopters you know operating from the 60s um initially in vietnam they were in, they were originally developed by bell i think they were the or was it Hughes? Now I can't remember. But anyway, they were called the Penetrator and they would initially develop the LA, Los Angeles Police Department who so they could silently or quietly fly around the city. But as soon as the... I think it was Bell. Um, as soon as the CIA saw these, they went, no, nope, we're having them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they went to fly in Vietnam and that was where they were first test flown and they would fly completely black no lights, um, and and people described how weird it was because you would have this helicopter flying over your head, but you would just hear the sound of a very distant engine. Um, and then after the Vietnam War, I think only two of them went to Vietnam, but then they disappear into a classic CIA cutout so a situation where they just sort of disappear into some small business, and that's the last they heard of. So they, re- you know, they were a real thing. And again, the next time we heard about them, interestingly, was the uh, raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in uh, Afghanistan. And one of them, one uh, you know, next generation or contemporary generation, stealth helicopter actually crashed during the operation. So there was first time a lot of images of these things had been seen. But that's the sort of thing, you know, we're talking about. And obviously you stick some interesting lighting arrays on one of those and you've got, you know, you've got your UFO right there. Um, and pe- and people describe, you know, do describe uh, whether you can believe the accounts or not, certainly say in the 70s, you know, people describe... Um, helicopters that that sort of seem to have weird lighting arrays on, and are you know silent and almost invisible, and things like this. Around, especially around the whole cattle mutilation storyline. But anyway.
0: Before we circle back to talk about Mirage, mate, could we um, talk a bit about you and, and how you originally got into uh, this weird stuff and what, what started your interest in UFOs and that kind of thing uh, back in the 80s?
2: Yeah, I agree. yeah, I'm a classic 80s kid. Uh, I actually remember queuing up. I remember seeing... I grew up in London. I remember seeing... Posters for *Close Encounters of Third Kind*, like massive posters wow. around. I would have been about four or five, and being really intrigued by those. I probably saw, you know, trailers for it on telly, so I'm sure that kind of uh, laid a certain some laid some seeds in my mind. But um, I was just always absolutely obsessed. Really, with the 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 wide range of paranormal, supernatural, uh kind of uh, culture and ideas, I think my aunt and my grandmother also were. So I suspect also some of it came from from them. Um, I was also really into you know classics. So I was really into reading. I just when everyone else was reading the famous five, I was reading War of the Worlds and you know Dracula. I read the unexpurgated Dracula and I was about seven, you know I, was I just, love that book uh, totally into it, it had the Osborne Supernatural World, was my favourite book I've got that still somewhere yeah, so that... it's just, you know, drawn in that way but there came a point I think it must have been mid-80s I used to go to Forbidden Planet a lot and I found 14 Times uh, which was sold there when it was in the small format and became kind of you know, an avid FT reader, and by the time I left, you know, I did a film studies degree. I wanted wanted to make films. You know as a teen, that was my other passion. But came out of university and started writing for Magonia which was a fantastic uh, and very very important and and kind of uh, so. so not forgotten because it was tiny, but so sort of needs to be re, um, yeah, re re remembered. Uh, Magonia, a kind of contemporary folklore journal that began as a UFO uh, journal and became a sort of folklore magazine. And I got very involved with them, then ended up writing for 40 Times and becoming a kind of staff writer there and on Bizarre Magazine so I was then just completely enmeshed really by that point and I was extremely happy to was <laughs> like my dream yeah. I mean dream a lot book, of that stuff really?
0: we, we would have read as kids because we were into 14 times and Bizarre oh. Magazine and that kind of thing yeah we we're know. about eight years younger than you I think so yeah I'm sure We'd I have... was
2: writing 90 I was at FT 97 to about 2001 or two and Bizarre Around yeah, you know, left bizarre as out. early days of bizarre and things. But
0: um, you wrote for the Guardian as well, didn't you? you I um, did. Yeah. Then yeah. I
2: ended. I had a weird science column in the Guardian for about three and a half years called Far Out, which was great. But I did about three hundred. I must have done one hundred and eighty or something, no, one hundred and fifty or so columns, and just sort of ran out of. It. run out of things to write about i literally have written about yeah every topic i think you can imagine in the kind of you know uh weird science and culture sphere but that was great and a very odd you know unexpected thing to happen
0: and extracurricular activities you were also uh were you did you head up the norfolk ufo society
2: i did yeah. yeah that was when i was at university in norwich um I didn't. I didn't start it. I, I sort of went to their meetings, and then the guy. It was a young couple, yeah, you know, couple of young guys in their twenties running it. But most of the members were much older. And I did it for at least a year, I'd say. But the problem was, I was much more sceptical than most of the other members, who were great, and they were in, really, you know, an interesting cross section of society you know, as ex-police ex-military everyone was very you know ch- you know chipper except for one guy psychic Steve who was a bit dodgy but <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. and with a name like that as well a good strong name
2: <laughs> he, uh, he claimed he knew about the you know government's satanic cabal headed by Norman Tebbit and things like this but uh, he was a David I- he was a David Icke uh, David Icke okay. was just start- just starting out at that time. Um, But, um, yeah, and that was, I mean, it was super, I learned, in in seriousness, I learned a huge amount about the way people engage with UFOs and how UFOs, or the idea of UFOs, affects people's, you know, perception, their perspectives, their relationship with the world. I really saw that happening, um, you know, in real time, on the ground, as they say, Mm -hmm. um, just by going out to talk to people who are having experiences and sightings um, and, you know, things that made people sending, I sort of slightly stupidly put my phone number on our, um, you know, our information sheets. So I'd have the <laughs> local newspaper ringing up to kind of say, Oh, someone seen, you know, seeing a little light in the sky. And I'd say, well, Tell them to go out at the same time tomorrow night, and if it's still there, not to call you back. And no one heard it. But you also had people who had genuinely very, you know, proper high strangeness experiences. And Norfolk is obviously quite famous for uh, its its um, you know anomalies. But we had some classic flying triangle sightings. We had a story of a family had which in almost certainly would now realize was probably if it was anything was a drone but some kind of triangular craft that basically came and just almost sat on their car roof as they were driving just sort of mirrored their path home remember them saying they could have leant out the window and banged on whatever it was um People with walls of light and things like this, uh, or you know, all of the classics. So, what year was that? This would have been early night, so 92, I guess. That must um, have been
1: terrifying because they wouldn't have known, most most of the general populace wouldn't have known uh, what the concept of drones were. No,
2: they, I mean, that's you know, while you know, drones are now absolutely commonplace, they were, you know, I think. Even saying to someone that they were, yeah, we all knew about remote control aircraft, but to say they were aircraft sized remote control <laughs> aircraft would, yeah, yeah. was mind blowing at the time. I actually remember, I have a real memory from around maybe slightly later, 95, 96, um, going to a valley in Wales for Valpurgis and Act with some friends we did, used to do it. I, all nighters there with, um, with with yeah uh, you know, with 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 the special source. and um, <laughs> uh, remember in the morning walking back and there was there was an air force RAF base nearby, and we were walking back and saw, I can't tell you what it was but a fighter jet being accompanied by a kind of lozenge, at the time that was just kind of keeping pace with it and was obviously you know Again, some kind of drone demonstrator thing. That was the first time any of us had seen something like that, and we like, ah. And we didn't go, "It's an alien." We just thought, "Wow, there's some interesting, interesting new technology we haven't seen before." Um, it's, it's just mad how, like, you just think like
1: if if more people had read Mirage Men, then I think it would there'd be a lot less kind of noise in the signal to noise of ufology yeah, if you see what i mean
2: <laughs> i don't i mean it's a nice thing to imagine but i don't i think yeah, the noise is so overwhelming and especially now it's just i think kind of um i mean i it is exhaust. yeah i i can't i don't try to keep up with it because it's just uh, exhausting but the noise is, is as always coming from the u.s is um now with social, you know, this bombardment of social media, it's properly just, you know, uh, um, annihilating. It's just kind of um, all overwhelming and all consuming. And I think that's, I, I do think that's n- not a good thing um, because, you know, especially it's in the nature, I think, of a lot of people who get interested in this, subject and in these areas, as I was, yeah, you do get quite obsessive about it. And if there's just so much noise and data and information just kind of billowing over you in waves, I think for some people that can be uh, un- unhealthy I would say But
0: It does, the, the, the social media side of it, like the UFO, Twitter and that kind of thing, it does often just feel like a load of people just shouting and not listening to each other, just shouting at each other, completely different conversations, you know, you get the threads where three or four different people are all having completely different conversations with themselves throughout it, no one's listening to each other and it does just become noise, you know, just white noise <laughs> So a crop circle maker, mm, or you yeah. did that for a while, and, and that was also John uh, Lundberg's yeah uh, sort of passion, wasn't it?
2: So it was yeah. So I got it was through fourteen times. I was a, when I was it was one of my first gigs with FT was to go out with the circle makers and um, you yeah, know make a circle and be part of the culture around that at the bar gin, which is actually where I live now which was the kind of epicenter for crop circle research through the late 80s and the 90s but um, I was invited to join the team after even though I wasn't very good at it but I got on really well with everybody (laughs) so I ended up joining the team did about nine I think nine years of crop circle making um, which I've found I absolutely loved Doing, I you know, I was I used I was just a kind of pair of legs, I wasn't a designer or um I necessarily contributed to the kind of um uh aesthetics or, or anything, but you know, I was there was only a four person crew, so it was you know, it was very exhilarating and exciting and. Again, very instructive in just seeing the way that people engage with things they don't understand and don't can't sort uh, of don't want to understand, I think is the important point. And the same with UFOs, you know, it's so obvious <laughs> that crop circles are just made by groups of people stomping around in crops with their planks and pieces of string or rope. Is that how it was
1: done with planks and pieces of rope? I I honestly yeah. don't know.
2: Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I thought everyone knew that. Yeah. It's, yeah. um, yeah, you <laughs> just have a plank of wood, uh, th- you know, probably three foot by one foot, holes drilled in each end and a rope to hold it. And you just sort of stomp your way around the field, but following obviously quite carefully demarcated, um, plans. And you have ropes and tape measures and, um, uh, posts that sort of mark mark various points of transit and um, and sort of uh, angles of rotation and things. It's like being a giant etch a sketch or or um, spirograph <laughs> really you just ruined it for a lot of people now a <laughs> lot of people who are listening are gonna be
1: like i thought they were real damn you pilkinson yeah, well, that's
2: the thing. they are real that's the point that's important is they are absolutely real you can sit that's what people love is you can go and sit in them you can have incredible mystical beautiful experiences in them um but that doesn't make and the fact that they're made by. People doesn't make them any less magical it makes them more magical i think and so um, your
0: your view in mirage men and and john lundberg's as well is that all crop circles are man-made yeah all over the world I mean, is that
2: don't have any doubt about that at all yeah. <laughs> um yeah there's not really I mean, any need for
1: um either ultra-dimensional or extraterrestrial beings with advanced intelligence to make a little pattern in the no. I like I mean, to
0: stay agnostic about all things. Yeah. <laughs>
2: the thing was, I mean, the the t- John and the rest of the team n- literally knew who had made every single formation except one. And uh. There was one there was one they didn't they didn't know who had done it. Um it, they think it was Cambridge students. It was near Cambridge and it was a Mandelbrot set fractal so early 90s classic um fractal era one and funnily enough I kept, they i wasn't on the team for it but they were commissioned to remake it for a tv series and they did say it was quite difficult so they were impressed whoever had done it they they kind of you know doffed their hats to the only ones that might not have been made by people are, are you know what you made by wind damage would just be kind of Blobbier than human made ones, but anything that had any structure or sharp edges or, you know, defined uh, iconography or kind of symbolism to it was 100% human, even if we didn't know who'd made them. And uh, over the years, people developed different styles. And while we were lo fi, there was a team that we got to know who did some quite well-known ones, I won't spoil it by saying which they were, but they actually did start using things like laser pointers. So they were behaving more like a dot matrix printer where they'd have like square up, square down, square up, square down, and kind of chew away at the crop that way. Um Whereas we were a bit more, we were more analog, I'd say. We were kind of flowing and fluid, whereas they were digital and just doing one you know ones and zeros as they went around and so that allowed them to do you know very more pic- sort of pictographic um cartoonish sort of stuff which personally I was not so into but um, I think
1: it's quite interesting that you wrote uh, a book about people fucking with people and you yourself have actually been fucking with people
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, I think that was important you know we were we were not unaware of this John and I, and I think our experience of, you know, crop circle making and seeing the response that people had to it and the willing suspension of disbelief, you know, that is involved in these relationships was really useful, actually, and helpful. And um, when we did meet people like Rick Doty, yeah, there was a kind of, perhaps some some kind of mutual understanding although he claimed not he claimed to be amazed that we had uh that we'd made them but i don't know if he was <laughs> but yeah i think you know the thing that's important what you look you know the thing that we see is that people um you know they it's a cliche but they really do want to believe in some things that are more than human we all do and it's perfectly commendable and understandable and you know whether you know there are different ways you can experience that feeling um through science through nature through um um you know magic through you know paranormal uh, interests and supernatural interests um and it's just kind of it's just part of our experience of being in the world and, and alive. And it's just, you yeah. know, it manifests for people in different ways. But the thing I used to say is like, you know, you look at a, you don't go into a, well, actually you do go to the pyramids and say, only aliens could have made that. But, you know, you don't go into <laughs> a gallery and see it, or listen to an incredible piece of music and say, that's far too complex for humans to have made. It must have been made by aliens or interdimensional being, so, you know, just I don't, it was, it, I think it was also the absurdity of the crop circle you know, of crop circles as a phenomenon and as an artwork the idea that why would anyone go out in the middle of the night in the rain and do that, Who would be so stupid, well we would, but um, I think that was part of the reason they were so puzzling, it was just such a so absurd thing to do um, and uh, yeah, I think I think uh, that kind of helped people to reject the idea that there was a mundane kind of route. Yeah, because to... it's almost discordian, isn't it? It's almost got
1: that kind of thing to it.
0: Well, it's a point that you make in mirage man, isn't it? That um, th- there's not always sense behind a hoax. You know, some people do just do hoaxes for kicks. You know, there isn't always a a grand Machiavellian Ooh. sort of plot behind it all. Sometimes people just like to do it for the hell of it.
2: Yeah, people like to fuck with each other. You know, it's um uh again that's another thing that's just prank yeah pranksterism and you know um kind of getting the better of each other is is it's it's fun and there's a great deal of pleasure to be had in people and, and never revealing what you've done, you know, and, and w- within the crop circling community there was, and I'm sure still is though there aren't many crop circles made at the moment, you know, a strong code of silence and that, you know, you might say, yes, I make crop circles, but you would never say which ones you'd made. Cause that would, yeah, that's like revealing a trick. Um, yeah. and obviously in the magic, you know, in the, in the illusionist world, that's an absolutely sort of core, core lore
0: Uh, but the the um the crop circle um making and so on is is fairly victimless and so on but some of the stuff that's in mirage men surrounding the ufo mythology is kind of murky at best and very very dark and disturbing at worst i mean paul benowitz is the archetypical example Mm. of Someone whose life was absolutely destroyed, at, seemingly at the whim of uh, government agencies. Um, yes. Were you surprised by what you found out when you were working on Mirage Man?
2: Um, I mean, not the the Benowitz, the Paul Benowitz story, which that we don't really need to recap here. People can find it online, um, but it's the it's the basic story is that a um, very high, successful, high functioning engineer of um, aviation kind of parts for NASA and the Air Force, um, was basically started to believe it. he was seeing UFOs flying around Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque and reported it to the security people at the base who, rather than telling him, don't worry about it, actually encouraged him in his delusions to the point that it sent him spiralling into a kind of, you know, paranoid um, vortex of despair, um, which was just, yeah, ended up with him hospitalised. it was very, very dark. Um, but uh, that story was well known. You know, I knew I'd known the story for a long time. It had always fascinated me. So it wasn't that surprising. I was surprised at the number of parallels and kind of recurring themes uh, or kind of recurring MOs that I would find going right back to the forties really of the same, the same stories and tricks being played on people over and over right back to, I think a really interesting story is the Maori Island uh, story from um washington state that drew in kenneth arnold soon after he'd had his um famous epoch making sighting in uh june 1947 um but he was drawn into a very classic kind of um, deception operation. It's not totally clear by whom, but it seems to have involved the Atomic Energy Commission in the States, the FBI. But they were concerned that he might be a, either a Russian agent or a sympathizer who was trying to either stir up trouble or pass information on. So I think they kind of checked him, conduct an operation to check him out and perhaps um, mess him up. Um, But the real tragedy of that story is that uh, the United States Air Force, which had just been um, inaugurated that year, um, had its first two fatalities as a result of that operation. Two um, Air Force officers were... Uh, carrying basically slag that was supposed to have be been ejected by a UFO over Maury Island Sound on a on a um, inland in flight that crashed, and they became the first kind of Air Force fatalities, all all because of this sort attempt to you know, um, mess with um, Kenneth Arnold's head, essentially. But so yeah, so, but anyway, point is that the the techniques that, that um, remain the same. So really interesting things going on around um, Brazil and the abduction of alleged abduction of Antonio Villas Boas and attempts to coerce popular authors into spreading UFO rumors go right back to the very very early days of the subject. Um, but again, as I try and show in the book. Yeah, you know, all of these techniques were just standard intelligence and counterintelligence techniques that were used, you know, in all fields of human endeavor and activity. They weren't unique to the UFO field. So that's what I tried to kind of make clear: is that this is not just these, you know, these these um, procedures weren't solely being used in in the UFO world. They were, you know, things like planting news stories like every every embassy around the world every every country's embassy around the world would have uh friendly newspaper reporters who they could just plant a story with who would then get it into the newspapers sometimes the local papers sometimes if you know if you're one of the bigger countries one of the bigger papers and you could just seed any story you liked in the same way now that you do in social media
0: yeah (laughs) I really enjoyed some of the uh, wartime ones. I think was it was a Second World War one when uh, they dropped propaganda over the German army, um, which basically told them how to fake injury yeah, yeah, to yeah, get yeah. themselves sent home. Yeah. That, that was it. a really good one.
2: The malingerer was the... the there was a special <laughs> yeah. team called the Malinger that they, they air-dropped onto, <laughs> onto the Germans. Yeah, um, No, it's brilliant. And also things like faking, you know, the British SOE Special Operations Executive created a fake astrological journal solely and ran it for several issues solely to try and ensnare the Nazi German high command who are all really into astrology to kind of try and steer them down certain paths of, um, you know, believing that uh, certain, uh, operations were going to begin at certain astrologically defined times. It's pretty, yeah, it's very far out really. um,
0: and have you seen these patterns repeated since Mirage Man? Sort of ten years um, since.
2: I would say yes, definitely. I mean, what we're seeing, yeah, you know, the absolutely insane kind of uh, efflorescence of interest, media interest in UFOs, and political interest in UFOs. It happens every. Yeah, you know, it happens. Yeah, so, I would say. Like the last time I remember it being this wild was probably the nine, you know, mid to late 1990s, um, but it does it seems to happen every, say what, 20 years or so, and I think partly that's just a generational thing, a new generation of you know, people get really excited about it, then nothing happens, then most people get bored of it and move on to hula hoops or whatever it is. Um, but then you know it takes twenty years for another generation who know not who don't remember the past to get excited and can then be wrapped up in it all again. Can have the same stories played out, and you know the same uh, media excitement will kind of bubble up and roll. And then the grifters come on board who will you know who will know how to manipulate both the, the believers and the media and get you know, play play the crowd as it were. but each time it's a bit different, the stories are slightly different, the focus is a bit different. Um, and now of course, with you know, social media, the just the, the kind of uh, intensity of the signal is is just unlike anything we've seen before and the sort of transmission and reception times are instantaneous, whereas you know, in the 90s, you, yeah, you would, see that a you know a tv special about roswell was coming in three weeks, and you'd just be going, Oh my God, this is the big one. The, yeah. three the, wave's weeks. Coming, the waves coming, you know, and you'd be waiting three weeks or more for this thing. Whereas now it's kind of, yeah, you know, it's just happening constantly. It's, it's
1: forgotten in three weeks. I mean, three weeks ago, <laughs> was it, was that the, the Chinese spy balloons three weeks ago? Or was that four yeah, weeks perfect, ago? It? Yeah, it yeah. got
2: 21 news cycles, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Spy balloons, what were they? What was that again? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's all gone now, <laughs> isn't it? And it's oh.
1: like, that was, uh, I mean, re- Having that happen sort of within a couple of months of reading Mirage Men, it was like, oh, yeah, like it seemed incredibly prescient. Like,
2: yeah, and it does make you, you know, I mean, I do talk about satellite balloons, as they're called satellite balloons in Mirage Men. And yeah, um, in the photo section, there's just this absolutely stunning photo of the NASA Echo One balloon, which is just unbelievably huge silver orb sat in a hangar with tiny people which i think they might have used some lens foreshortening on to make them look even tinier but still an incredible image so i knew that they were out there and i think a lot of certainly in the 50s and 60s a lot of ufo sightings of actual objects were related to satellite launches and balloons and early rocket launches and things like that um But yeah, the response, I mean, the response to the Chinese uh, balloons, and we should point out one of them was just a hobbyist balloon, wasn't it? Some some poor guys like hobby balloon getting shot down by the US Air Force. Um, But the response to these, you know, that, you know, people, you saw people who are, you know, big figures now in the UFO online, particularly UFO media world, trying to claim that you know there was a cover up about they were claiming they'd shot down a hobby balloon but when we haven't seen the wreckage they're not showing us the footage they're not telling us yeah you know, what's going on this is it this is you know this is the ufo um sh- you know um Disclosure. interception that we've been waiting for it's like guys you know you you've got to just cool off <laughs> disclosures <laughs> a big me. thing now isn't yeah.
0: it i mean you 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 do talk about it in Mirage Man, but it seems to be almost like a cult now, especially online. You know, it's like waiting for the rapture, isn't it? And then when it doesn't come, just like with these cults, the, the 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 dawning of this new age is then the calendars reset and they get a new one. But what's interesting now is that there's, um you know, the, 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 there are like you were saying, there's prominent figures who talk about this. There's media organisations that talk about this. It's always being put out there these ideas, um, you know, and it just seems to be murkier than ever.
2: Yeah, and it's you know, it's basically yeah and all these as i say in the book and like to say all of these people are the mirage men aren't just and women are not just working for the intelligence agencies they're the people who are just amplifying the signal which often is very weak and then you just get these kind of repeaters and boosters who just just kind of crank it up to a deafening level and then keep it and sustain the signal for just for a great length of time. and then they, if they can sustain it long enough, then media you know the media, mainstream media pick it up and get involved. Um, and then and then you just have this rolling wave until everybody gets tired of it. and it, and it just happens on a cyclical basis. But you know I, I sort of think you can say something you start with something that, that's folklore and UFOs are unquestionably a contemporary folklore then around that folklore cults start to develop where people start to develop um, you know uh, certain structures of belief and expectation and desire around these folkloric entities or objects and then the next stage is religion where you then start to have a kind of her- a kind of social structure you start to have um behaviors kind of codified behaviors codified language codified well the codified language comes in with a cult actually but yeah, you, know, you start to just see a kind of um structuring deep structuring and and kind of um regulation of this belief and also then that belief moving into the mainstream and into the kind of political you know, political and social power structures, and that's when it starts to become religion. And I think we have reached that point now where it is a religion. And so when you see and that's not a bad thing, I just think that's that's just what is going on now. And when you see people in the same way that politicians exploit, you know, more conventional you know um religious beliefs, you know um Christianity, Islam, um Judaism, you know um Hinduism, Orthodox religious beliefs get exploited and manipulated and um weaponized by politicians and we you know that's what we're seeing particularly in America uh, at the moment with or you see a lot of the right particularly on the right you know politicians starting to, talk about the Chinese balloon thing became a, a kind of bit of a focal point for it but also things like which and this is something I did ask around in the UFO community a little bit about this but um, Robert Bigelow who's a very very important figure in the kind of last two or three decades of ufology in America and has basically underwritten a lot of the research and publicity and kind of um lobbying and a lot you know a lot of the things that we've seen in the last couple of decades like um TV series books uh, newspaper reports have all come as a result of his lobbying and and funding um uh anyway sorry um Bigelow just gave a massive donation I can't remember exactly how much to run DeSantis who I think is yeah you know, one of the most yeah more dangerous people in the world <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right yeah. now. Uh, and you know their main I don't not saying that's kind of thing to do with UFOs as such, but at some point down the line, maybe it will have if he becomes president or what have you. but it also doesn't hurt that uh, Bigelow's business is aerospace and defense aerospace and you know developing satellite technologies, which again, is another reason we see a lot of talk about you know defending ourselves against unknown threats from you know from outer space, whatever. It is. Because this is all absolutely wrapped up in the way the defense industry is is you know uh, works and operates. And is
1: I guess like one of the things that we we wanted to ask you was about what do you think the end game is for. You know, government or for the people who are putting a lot of money into this. But I mean, I think you've kind of answered that question already in terms of it's it's just another means of kind of sort of funding, <laughs> funding wars. <laughs>
2: yeah, and development, yeah, and developing cool new um, aircraft and aerospace technologies and things. But um, yeah, sadly, the way the world is turning at the moment, we're probably not going to need aliens to you know, to ramp up the uh, you know, military industrial complex on anywhere in the world. And the other thing that I think is important that I like to phrase, I can't remember if I use this in Mirajman Men, but it's the military entertainment complex. And that's really... Yeah, I've heard that phrase. I'm guessing it was in Marriage Men. It's a really big part of the story as well. And, you know, when you look at one of the things it's in Mirajman Men that I found really interesting was the... A story of um, UFOs past, present, and future by uh, Bob Emmerneger, who sadly died quite recently. But it was a Air Force funded pro UFO documentary made in the 70s, and it became a real, you know, became one of the things that people around the site just before Close Encounters actually, but it became one of the things that everyone remembered. Um, but um, that was. Yeah, you know, again, the reasons for its creation were not simply to encourage belief in UFOs, which is what it did, but actually to drive um, recruitment towards the Air Force to say, "Join the Air Force, and you might actually learn the truth about UFOs." Um, because after the Vietnam War, no one wanted to join the the army, so they were looking at novel ways to kind of lure people in. So. Um, but, you know, that is the military entertainment complex in a nutshell. Um, but even things like, you know, the Day the Earth Stood Still in the 50s, Independence Day, all these things are basically fusions of, you know, the, the UFO culture, the folklore, and, um, you know, as a, again, a weaponized entertainment industry, essentially.
1: But, Where do you stand on the idea that these things are kind of almost predictive programming. I know there's that theory, isn't there, that they're kind of the, the man are putting these these kind of UFOs, et cetera,
2: into films as enemies. I don't know. I mean, definitely, you know, there's no doubt that, I mean, a classic case, which I think I'm briefly talking about, there. Yeah, the the day, the Earth Is still Robert Wise's classic 1951, yeah, the classic flying saucer landing yeah. in Washington, D.C. story, um you know that's both both you know a christian allegory told through a you know high tech science fiction um uh et lens but the message there is that you know the alien the aliens uh Klatu and his robot companion gort are essentially america and they they are the only people who have the moral Christian right to have ownership of and domination of atomic weapons, yeah, and it's it's down to them to determine who gets bombed and who doesn't, and that's kind of the message. So that the message of Davis is still is if you keep, although it's talking about atomic bombs, if you keep using your atomic bombs, we're going to rip your planet apart, and that was the role that the Americans saw themselves in. So you have a kind of you know layered management of you know, um, and so, yeah, a social and political understanding of the world through films like that. And, of course, that's, you know, um, most blockbusters are in some way, you know, um, have some relationship to their political kind of era. You know, the, there are so many now, I just can't remember which era it was, but the kind of Batman films from about a decade ago were basically uh a kind of apologies for american you know international military um you know practice in the middle east and things you know um
0: yeah not the hero you want but the hero you need and all that yeah exactly yeah, yeah. probably more so than in the documentary for the most part you take quite a firmly skeptical stance um it does change it just shift a little towards the the end and you talk about exploring the world of gently shifting greys and so on
2: that's my that is my perspective really yeah. yeah i mean so one thing i make a big distinction between is yeah, you know, and i don't think the same i think it Two different things that have been com- were conflated together in the nineties, because that was because the nineties was all about conflating things together. You know, rock and dance music, rock and rap uh, music, which was right. <laughs> which was <laughs> but, which
1: was worse than any extraterrestrial. Uh,
2: I actually saw Anthrax and Public Enemy at Brixton Academy. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Rage Against uh, the Machine. Rage the Machine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but. Um, Uh, oh, I've lost my sorry, lost my train of thought. I know to say, so you have you know people seeing things that they perceive as impossible objects or non human objects or objects behaving, you know, outside the technological capacity of the you know of human technology of the time, but that's totally different to people having you know, Gnostic, very personal, very overwhelming encounters with non-human intelligences, which I think is yeah, is just something else. But they became again, I talk about a bit in Mirageman, but you know, the early days of the very earliest days of the UFO field were essentially occultism it was people or spiritualism it was people channeling extraterrestrials through ouija boards or through mm. going into trances and things like that and it only became technologized when um scientists and the military so got involved and the the contactees were kind of portrayed as stupid while you know clever scientists uh, were doing the real real work but then you know it came and went but by the 90s yeah, when the whole alien abduction thing became absolutely colossal that was again an attempt to kind of introduce a, a, a mystical you know tra- um, tra- um transcendental um uh aspect to the to these encounters but they were also merged wrongly and and actually actively, Deceptively with the, uh, you know, with UFO culture because that was a kind of dominant pop, cu- easily understood pop cultural meme, as it were, that was, you know, was much easier to comprehend than these very baffling and almost, I'm, you know, totally sure almost entirely internalized kind of spiritual experiences that people were having. So I think they're two different things. And mm. I'm absolutely. You know, I'm generally sceptical about pe- people's descriptions of, you know, blobby videos of, um, you know, birds and plastic bags and balloons <laughs> flying through the sky. But I am entirely always enthralled to hear people's um, encounters with whatever they consider them to be extraterrestrial intelligences um, and you know, interdimensional intelligences um occult intelligences whatever you know whatever however you want to clothe them um but i just don't yeah i'm fascinated by some of the more extreme mergings of those ideas of those two kind of themes and particularly 90s ufo books things like into the fringe by carla turner i think so really really
1: i saw a picture of that today actually yeah
2: someone put it someone put it up on twitter but it's that's yeah. true. Intriguing and weird, yeah, very weird book. Um, and I, do, I, I particularly really do am um, very interested in those experiences. But people, it's less, um, yeah, people for whatever reason because it was all couched within the alien abduction narrative framework, and that's easy for people to comprehend once that sort of petered out because essentially Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and Leo Sprinkle died, or, or were banned from, you know, working. Um, then those narratives have gone, and so there's not really a, uh, there's not really the UFO framework to bolster what are essentially spir- yeah, spiritual or transcendental experiences. To but there are, you know, people i'm sure that you know there is a flourishing new age scene again there's a flourishing magical scene again so those experiences can now be compartmentalized elsewhere i think is is what's happened
1: we think about it in a very similar way i think don't we hein i think we have a similar way of 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 almost like ufology stuff the things that people are seeing in the sky are completely different to the things that people are Encountering in a, a yeah. very personal sort of almost like psychic element way, like the 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 stuff basically the stuff that Jacques Vallee uh, talks about a lot, and it's it's almost as if I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but it's almost as if these entities, whatever you want to call them, almost perhaps are intentionally presenting themselves as, in some cases, as being from space in a way as a as a form of trickery um, or 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 for for whatever reason that we can't understand whether it yeah. be some, something to do with like our imaginations or our you know but, but the, the idea that there's almost an intention they want us to think that they're from space yeah you know,
2: I'm less as a, perhaps being a having got a bit older I'm I'm perhaps less prepared to uh give these entities full autonomy shall we say okay I think that I think they're always. I think they can appear autonomous. I think they can have effects in the world through the people that they are engaged with, but I think they are always anchored. Not always. My sense is that they are anchored to consciousness, Um, but where I get weird is that I do think you, you know, perhaps, this is my sort of perhaps, is that some of these things are actual... What you the things that you get when more than one consciousness kind of overlaps or you know, into creates some kind of moire interference pattern with, with several others? I, in the piece I sent you, um, uh, yeah. um, yeah, talk about it being siphonosaurus, uh, um, is that the right word? I think it is, yes, um, but you know, like uh, colonies of, yeah, you know, like a jellyfish is a massive colony of, of, of kind of, uh, individual cells. I think you know, consciousness might work in similar ways at times where, you know, different conscious, different consciousness, and they could be human on, or, or, you know, not human, but not necessarily. Supernatural.
0: So then the, the, those sort of consciousness act almost like kind of nerve cells that were, or neurons or something that would form their own sort of almost brain or thinking entity.
2: Yeah, oh, it's more that we, the way we interpret those encounters, we have to kind of make sense of them in a way that we can understand, so we kind of, you know, something that's very fuzzy and confusing, we will, you know, through the, some kind of um, uh, pareidolia effect, we'll kind of try to uh, create meaning from these sort of very fuzzy uh, senses of engagement and interaction, but yeah, different people are perhaps better at focusing. Um, you know, fo- focusing their uh, mean. You know, their means to interpret very fuzzy information. Some people are better at seeing shapes in clouds. I always see the same faces on toilet floors. You know, um, it's. Um, uh, but certain people are probably much better at mediums and. Uh, Archers you know, have have kind of honed their innate ability to draw information from you know from these kind of clouds of consciousness. Perhaps that's that's a big if you know. I'm not, but that's that's kind of how I imagine it might work. Um,
0: it's very similar. We had a conversation in November with a um, chaos magician, Mark Vincent, and um, it, he was touching on similar ideas. You know about the our interpretation of reality being very limited to what it is, you know, and the it, it's almost like seeing beyond what is there in front of us and what our senses are directly picking us up, which is completely survival related hmm. to the other things that the multitude of other things that are going on all the time around us that we don't know are going on because we're not designed to know that.
2: Yeah. Right. There's a filter model. You're filtering out all the stuff that's not kind of essential to your day-to-day uh existence or survival yeah. Yeah. It does yeah, the, perception. Um, I, yes exactly it goes back to her, actually, absolutely um no i think I, I definitely think there's something in that and certain yeah certain times you know that whatever you want to call it the filter is wide open or overloaded and weird shit seeps in and then you know how you interpret that Experience that weirdness is down to your, you know, your understanding of the world, to what you've read, to what you, to any innate beliefs you might already have, but also, really importantly, to who you go and see to talk about it. If you went to see a ufologist, they would tell you being abducted by aliens. If you went to see a, you know, a um, Catholic priest, they might tell you being possessed. If you went to see Jungian, union, they'd say you engaged with the collective unconscious. If you went to see a occultist, you know, they might say you were talking to your holy guardian angel, etc. You know, uh, so in and most people don't get to choose who they talk to, or the, you know, they they either they just fall into a mode of understanding what's happening yeah. to them.
0: There was something that me and Buckley talked about a while ago, where something like that. It goes through so many different layers of reality. So, you know, you talk about that initial experience, which might be the overloading of the filter or whatever. There is that occurrence. And then there is the experience of that occurrence. And then there is your brain making sense of that occurrence. And then there is your mind telling you about that experience. And then there is you telling that to someone else. And then there is someone else listening to that and making their own thing of it. And that whole thing takes on a life of its own.
2: Yeah. And if, you know, and this is where media manipulation and coming back to the mirage men you know or to mirage men that's where if you can flood the media with you know ufo talk then there's a higher yeah there's a higher propensity that people are going to interpret their experiences as ufology you know as to do with extraterrestrial intelligence in the past you know almost everything was into in, in in you know in america in the west in the past everything, almost every experience was it was read through the you know the the lens of Christianity. It's just whatever the dominant um me you know media and um social belief systems are. And now that's much more fragmented, but that's what. but you do you know, you get UFOs that you know, you don't get uh waves. The the, the interesting thing with UFOs is you don't get the same kinds of waves about, say, you know, there are waves of interest in witchcraft and occultism, and we've had one of those, you know, recently, and these things tend to just be ongoing, but they kind of surge up every now and again, but you don't, you know, the the, things like that on New Age spiritualities are so vague and ill-defined that there's nothing for people to latch onto, whereas the good the thing with UFOs, can you hear me over the yeah the, yeah. Uh, UFO, the UFO crash going on outside? <laughs> um, the thing with UFOs is it's a really simple idea, and it's also a very plausible idea. It's a yes, you know, scientifically it's not. It's a you know, just because you don't believe we've been visited by extraterrestrials in shiny spacecraft doesn't mean you can't believe that extraterrestrials are, you know life forms and civilizations are out there somewhere in distant solar systems. So it's a very you know, easy and um plausible thing to get your head around in, in the way that yeah you know, more abstract spiritual ideas aren't. So that's why it has a recurring power and why it's easier for the easy for the men and the media to kind of pump you know to 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 pump the UF UFO. Uh, umbrella every you know every now and again.
1: It's a very effective symbol as well, isn't it? If you think about yeah. kind of uh, the idea that sort of magic is is the language of symbols, and oh. the the idea that it, it kind of fits really well with that because you've got this kind of disc shape or a triangle shape, and it's all kind of simple shapes, and you you you, yeah. you it's almost like memeified.
2: yeah, which yeah, makes label, it very like, you know, easy. Like young young uh, Carl Young, the you know great, yeah. Uh, Psychologist's um, uh, book about uh, flying saucers. The um, um, is still, you know, one of the absolutely great books on the subject, and he talks about exactly that: how the sort of symbol of the UFO is uh, is just kind of universal. It's just the man. It's a circle. It's a mandala. It's just absolutely one of the, the kind of primal primal forms that that we encounter and engage with so it just hits you hits you right there <laughs> it sounds
1: like your um your idea of it is almost it reminds me of um jack valet's assertion that um that it's almost a a control system for consciousness almost like a thermostat and so he's not necessarily saying it's it has agency very sort of very similar to how you have described it i mean this obviously this was but this was in the invisible college which was written in 1975 so he might have changed his view since then but it sort of reminded me of what you were saying in terms of that idea of it's not doesn't necessarily have to be a thing with agency it could just be almost like a system that exists within
2: yes. human I mean, consciousness i i i, I, I you yeah, know i was very, certainly very influenced by ballet and and hold it hold him in high regard certainly his sort of earlier work um but i guess my sense is yeah and then yeah my my reading is less that yes less that it has agency in itself but it is just a um yeah it's some kind of social uh, psychic uh, uh cultural um so sort of a system that's just it's like a chaotic system that kind of regulates Itself, but needs to um, erupt with weirdness um, every now and again in order to kind of, you know let off steam or ballast to stop stop the system kind of breaking down. A really uh, important book and hugely influential to me was, which is essentially about this, is George Hanson's uh, "The Trickster and the Paranormal," um, which absolutely was when i read that um just yeah just made so much sense but it's 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 that same idea that there's you know uh system human systems just kind of grind into regulated and tightly controlled kind of mechanized social structures um the sort of tricksterish chaotic element is just there to kind of disrupt that and just will do so when it reaches, like you're saying, a kind of, in a sort of um, systemic way, it will just, at a certain point, there has to be this kind of eruption of chaos. You can't only have a system that's all about control. You've got to have the, the balance of weirdness or uh, um, kind of uh, ontological uh, disruption and that's just baked into human experience um i mean and hansen kind of again does does attribute this to having its own autonomy i think in his book but i, I think it's something that's just more about um into, you know, interference patterns in human systems or just the way that we engage with each other you know that, um it's, it's just kind of part of who and what we are um but it can feel like it can feel that it has agency it can feel and it's very easy to give it agency and project agency on it and it's fun to do so as well that's the other thing you know throwing yourself into um you know what what we used to call psychic questing into kind of magical um yeah is is thrilling if you if you can fit it into your life. It's a very exciting thing to do, um, and can also be very bewildering and overwhelming. You know, the classic study of this is Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, it can, you know, pe- people people understand a bit more how it works. I think now. So, um, but it's again, it's not something you can kind of half do. You have to <laughs> you have to throw yeah. yourself throw yourself into the abyss to um to sort of let it so consume you we were talking steven about helia you know and and what's great with helia is they actually it's almost like they're making the behind the scenes film of people uh, making a film about themselves doing exactly that yeah yeah. you you can actually see the process of them inducting themselves you know as they even even if at times they're going oh you know, come on. You know, you're you're trying. You're, you're kind of wishing you're willing too hard for this to be so. But if you will hard enough, you know, then it will. You know, in some respects, you you then and you know you you force yourself into the headspace uh, yeah. where it is so, and then that's how it works. And then that
1: becomes influential
2: to other people
1: very much in the same way that Cosmic yeah. Trigger did. You know, I think like so many of the people that we. Uh, I mean, we've only been doing vase for about a year. And so many of the people that we've encountered that we are the kind of first kind of people that we started reading and stuff, it was quite clear that they were all really influenced by Cosmic Trigger. Yeah. Um, and then when you read Cosmic Trigger, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is where it all, you know. I mean, I'm sure stuff happened
2: previous to that, but, you know, it seemed like that was a, uh, a, well, st- a starting point. Robert Anton Wilson just was, had just a he wrote it in the first person so it's, and he's a really engaging writer and character but he also just had a really smart awareness and self-awareness of um you know what was able to sort of you know through his you know multiple enforce multiple personalities was able to kind of step outside of himself each time that yeah. self was entering into a new you know tunnel whatever you want to call it but he was also just a, a great writer and a, and a, a very good articulator of of strangeness and uh, obviously is written about incredibly well by eric davis in high weirdness oh yeah um, i've read that yeah but, but we're also um, publishing uh, a kind of a, a new sort of, sort of as official as can be biography of robert anton wilson probably trying to get it out late this year to keep it in the oh excellent that's fantastic
0: because i was looking for one of those recently and i couldn't find one that i thought was decent
2: yeah there's not there isn't one really and this will be very it's being edited i'm not we've given that to a extremely professional editor because we want to make sure it's as good as can be but It's someone, a young American guy, Gabriel Kennedy, who's been working with his family and the archives and things. So it's very going to be very uh, sort of thorough and have access to a lot of new material. Um, Put put me down for a copy, please. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely Um, fantastic. But um, yeah, and um, yeah. Uh, It was funny because, you know, there are obviously, there are UFOs and UFO stories and it was in Cosmic Trigger and it was the time of Robert Temple and the Sirius Mystery and, you know, the Dogon story and all of that. But, you know, the UFO, he's never really, yeah, I'm surprised that Raw never did a full on UFO book. Um, you they they always appear as minor, yeah, you know, UFOs and yeah. ETs are always present as characters. But he could have done a really great analysis of the UFO kind of culture and and panics. I think, although yeah, John, people like Keel, kind of yeah, sort of know, yeah, sort of did that. But again, through I think I think um, Keel's Mothman prophecies is is the idea is another very yeah, very much in the same mold of someone let, letting facts be damned and just throwing himself into the into the maelstrom, into the vortex, and again getting pretty battered by it, but creating uh, yeah another absolute sort of landmark text for um, yeah you know, again articulating the effects of high weirdness on you know on your on your personality and your yeah, and your psychology and, and, and experience of the world. And communion, Whitley Strieber's communion, I think, is another. Yeah, another we,
1: quite... we both struggled with that. We, we both did the audiobook of it, and the audiobook's read by Whitley Strieber, uh-huh. and it's, it's just too upsetting. I it's think very disturbing. I think I've about three quarters of the way through it, and it's just a grind. It's just like mm. it's just like the, the repetitiveness of it. and the, I, I don't know. S- this... Something
0: very horrible was happening to him. Whatever it was, it yeah. was really horrible.
2: Yeah. the um the film uh with the films Walker incredible yeah, it's a yeah. <laughs> I, I keep wonderful.
1: trying to tell hind to watch it because that <laughs> scene you know which scene I'm talking about yeah, yeah. that scene it's, is just one of the greatest things about and it it's actually genuinely disturbing it, it's yeah. one of them things where it's like the the, the the special effects are so bad that it actually looks like it's more real yeah I
2: think it's really, I just think it's a great portrayal of again high high weirdness encounters and and the and Christopher Walken is you know the perfect <laughs> person but if they tried to do it now it'd be Nicolas Cage and yeah we're, uh...
1: <laughs> Walken is completely insane in it he's just yeah. like yeah yeah
0: We're talking about books and movies and stuff. Um, for people who enjoyed Mirage Men, uh, can you recommend f- further reading or further viewing, um, or even just music? Um, you know, anything that you'd like to recommend to people who like Vase? Yeah,
2: books. You know, I think we mentioned all the books I've mentioned, which were what, um, Tricks from the Paranormal by George Hansen, High Weirdness by Eric Davis, one of ours. You know, I still think that I think that's okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd um, encourage that. Carl Jung's uh, "Flying Source is a myth of things seen in the sky. Uh, I even think, you know, going back to the early books like Edward Ruppelt's report on Project Blue Book, I think it's called, been the very first sober account of the early days of the UFO um, waves. It's really, really interesting. Um one of the things that really made me happy was seeing uh Jack Brewer's book The Greys Have Been Framed which is a, a sort of direct continuation of a lot of what I was doing in Mirage Man except he's a much more thorough uh researcher who does you know all the, does fire reports and they have is really really Great with fire reports, freedom of information reports, and um, but he really also dives into the abusive practices and the abduction kind of generation sort of um, culture of the nineties. Less directly UFO related things like the Secret Life of Puppets by Victoria Nelson, which is um, just a really absolute incredibly deep and erudite examination of our relationship and the meaning of of supernatural and experiences and uh, engagements in our culture. Um, Jeffrey Kripal's Mutants and Mystics uh, and Authors of the Impossible, both incredibly important. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of good stuff. I mean, it's actually I do think it's been amazing that uh, you know, truly you know brilliant thinkers, scholars, philosophers, researchers are are now tackling these subjects, whereas, you know, in my day, you just had to read the it was all you just read the pulp, and that was yeah. fine. But, you know, you didn't it didn't necessarily <laughs> give you a critical or theoretical framework for thinking about this stuff, but now, you know in a in a brilliant way, a lot of these people are are um, articulating and clarifying all the things we've thought in, but also bringing a huge new, new layers of learning and and um, scholarship and knowledge into the field, which is incredibly valuable.
1: Have you heard of that book, Camellio, by uh, Robert Guffey?
2: Favorites? I absolutely love that book. Yeah, yeah.
1: I-, I want to read that. It looks amazing.
2: It's absolutely. I read that. Um, few three or four years ago, and it, I just thought this is the most perfect 14 book I've ever read, or at least I've a long way. And I I got immediately got in touch with Robert Guffey, and um yeah, we had quite we we sort of have could good ex- every now and again have exchanges, but that um just I absolutely was convinced it was fiction. And it just does such a brilliant, it's so brilliant at, you know, you it presents as non-fiction, but you're reading it absolutely convinced this is just, you know, what they now call auto-fiction. Yeah. Um, but then gradually you start to realize, no, this is yeah. not at yeah. It's absolutely, these are someone's, you know, reported, absolutely directly reported experiences. But what was weird, I started to then... You know, check out some of the references and some of the organizations that are being references, reference, and they're all you know they're all real. So I just got completely consumed by it. I really, I think it's a, um, yeah, a truly, uh, a a, a just perfect piece of forty and sort of uh, weird, weird non-fiction. So it's that say fiction?
0: Oh, what what's coming up next for for you for uh, for Stranger Tractor and for and for Mark Pilkington? Uh, What are you working on at the moment?
2: I mean, Stranger Trapped to Press is out of control at the moment, to be honest. There's just so much um, just today sent to press, uh, and what will be a mind blowing and huge uh, book of artwork by Eric Roper, an old friend of mine who's a sort of fantasy psychedelic illustrator uh, who's worked with loads of uh, heavy psychedelic bands like sleep and um and Sano and high on fire and and more popular bands like the black crows and things but it's just a massive book of his artwork which literally broke my computer um (laughs) getting together (laughs) but i'm relieved to say that's gone to print um we've got um i just um a lot of stuff a a posthumous book by mel gordon that's of um called Cabarets of Death that uh, my friend Joanna Evenstein who does morbid Anatomy if you've come across that she's put together and that's a, again a kind of visual compendium of research surrounding 19th century um, death themed cabaret entertainments and cafes mainly in Fantastic. in Paris um, in Fandercirc of Paris um, I've got a great book by my friend Doug Skinner, a consummate renaissance man and and called uh, Music from Elsewhere, which is a uh, kind of exploration of music heard from anomalous or supernatural sources. So wow, uh, but he's, uh, but he, um, what's going to be great, it has all the notation in it. So it's people's kind of... You know, he, uh, playing back music they heard on flying saucers in the case of Howard Menger or music from secret societies or music played by angels and fairies and things but we'll have all of the notation wherever possible oh, in people can actually that play sounds incredible back. we've got a lot a, a lot um, coming Oh, uh, uh, the, uh, the first critical history of Warhammer Oh um, wow! Um, See <laughs> um, <laughs> Buckley's prick up. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, yeah. we've we've got a lot of great, great stuff coming.
0: Are you working on anything at the moment, personally, music or or, or writing? Or uh,
2: I'm, yeah, music's always happening. Teleplasmist. Um, we actually have a new album. So, which hopefully will come out in October. It's it was going to be an e but we've put an extra track on it to make it an album um, and that will happen um, but everything's a bit mad in the world of pressing vinyl and yeah release schedules and things but Who are you releasing it with? Uh, State 51 um, Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah, um, yeah Who yeah. distribute your records now as well Yeah, on, they do, yeah, yeah. That's who we work with for our books online sales as well Yeah, um, and They've started a Label and and invite and we were invited to contribute to that and that's exciting. That's first thing we'll have put out for a while. And we've done a done another track for which I hope will come out this year because it's the 50th anniversary. We've done a uh, track for a compilation of mu- of interpretations of music from The Wicker Man. <laughs> wow! Oh <laughs> um, wow! And we've done a a, a very pretty cool if I say so myself, track for that. Um, I assume you're not but...
1: talking about the Nicolas Cage version of Wickerman, <laughs> <laughs> Which I've
2: never seen, actually, weirdly. No, um, I
1: haven't. I don't think we need to watch that. I think we'll be okay.
2: I quite
0: enjoyed that film.
2: Um, yeah, there's always, yeah, I'm doing, there's lots of other music, but it's dry, my other main duo, Luminous Foundation, with my friend Neil Mortimer, who is, lives nearby. We've got, we're trying to get another couple of releases out. Um, but we did one with um, um, Belberry uh, music, Jim Jupp's kind of ghost oh, box yeah. side label. Yeah, we yeah. did that last year um, so, we're, so we're hoping to get another one together for him, so yeah, always doing music got our first Teleplasmus gig in three years on Saturday, which will be exciting supporting Current 93 um, there's always, yes, always music stuff going on, but it's uh, at the moment, the press is kind of overwhelming. Um, and in theory, I am writing a new book which is I don't want to talk about because I don't want to jinx it, but it's it's uh it has some alliances with Mirage Men, but it's, it's also Excellent. quite different. But, we um, have to come back on and talk about it when it's ready.
0: I'd love to, yeah. Where can people find you and your work? I've
2: ran out. I used to have a Mirage Men. Blog, which actually has a lot of good for about five years, I kept writing new material, which a lot of which I think is really good. It's I think it's like miragemen.wordpress.com, it's still there. Um, and I really did put a lot of extra materials, things that I was discovering up there. and, And I keep thinking, actually, what I should just do is when I have time, instead of trying to rewrite the book, just start putting new material up there instead. And, and again, it's just a timing thing. It says that Stranger Tractor Press is www.strangertractor.co.uk. And um, music stuff, Teleplasmist and Luminous Foundation have sort of presences on Bandcamp and and the rest. Um, but yeah, that's enough. That's enough of me, really.
0: <laughs> I'll put all those links up in the show notes so that uh, people who are listening can, um, can find all that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And if you want to find Vase, um, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram. And that's at Vase. And then Vase spelled backwards, so that's at V-A-Y-S-E-E-S-Y-A-V. We're also on Mastodon, that's just at Vase. Um, you can find our website at www.vase.co.uk. I push this every every single episode, but the Bandcamp, if you want to support us, well, we don't ask for any money, um, everything that we do with Vase is free at the moment. So if you want to support us, please buy uh, Buckley's excellent soundtrack to Vase, and you can find that on Bankcamp. There's a link through on the website. And if you'd like to email us with any uh, questions, queries, or any of your own experiences or things that you'd like to talk about, anything weird, you can uh, email us at vaseinfo at gmail.com.
1: I, I just have one more question before you go, Mark. Ooh. So uh, yeah. we fin- we finished this podcast tonight, right? The, 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 we, say, we say our goodbyes. and uh, you're about to go to bed and there's a knock at your door. Okay. You open it, it's, t- it's Tom DeLonge. And he says, <laughs> he says, Mark, I need you to come with me and join the To The Stars Academy. Oh. What would you do? What would you do, Mark?
2: I would How would say, you respond? Um, can I? Can you just let me know what my salary would be? Uh... <laughs> yeah. When he was first um, starting to kind of do the round, someone sent me a photo of, him being interviewed, and you can see a copy of Mirage Men on his bookshelf. So,
1: wow, uh, wow.
2: Hopefully, he's read it.
1: What if he just wanted you to join Blink One Eighty Two?
2: If he just wanted me to make kind of whooshy sounds on the synths absolutely fine with me. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm not a music. I'm genuinely I'm not a musician, so I can't, you know, I can't uh, play to order or play a play a tune. No. I disagree. This is the collab that we need. <laughs> Mark, Mark Pilkington <laughs> Versus Blink
0: 182. In
1: that (laughs) order. very much everyone good night and god bless and don't let the mirage men bite get to the <laughs> bastards
2: they're always up to something